Well, we do want to welcome everyone here today, those that are here with me in our celebration service, those across the way in our summit service. I was able to visit with them just a few moments ago. And those in our lower auditorium, in our COVID precaution room, we're thankful that you are here. All of those who are worshiping online and worshiping on television, uh, I've been looking forward to today because today we begin our journey in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we started last week with a little preliminary look at the city of Ephesus and some things that the Lord was doing in the city of Ephesus as we find those in the book of Acts. Uh, but today I want to begin our formal study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to take about eight months to do this. We're going to cover, if we can, every single verse in the book. And I am honestly just beside myself excited about sharing this uh, with you. Uh, we learned last week that some people suggest that the book of Ephesians is the greatest, the, it's hard to say this because it sounds like an exaggeration, but I've, I've tried to think of an exception and, I, and I, I'm convinced this is the case. The book of Ephesians, the greatest thing ever written. Uh, in fact, I shared last week from my point of view, I think if you only knew one book of the Bible, if you were only going to study one book, you should study the book of Ephesians. It is that important. And so today we'll jump in Ephesians chapter one, verse one. Uh, we have some heavy lifting to do today. So let's begin. Uh, the verse says, the first verse says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. So this is written by the Apostle Paul. He writes to Christians in the church in the city of Ephesus. Verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul begins most of the letters that he has written to churches. And then verse three, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. You notice the word bless is in one verse, verse three, three times. And if we had 38 weeks instead of 28 weeks to get through the book of Ephesians, I'd spend an entire week talking about the word blessed there. Used, as I said, three times in three different ways. It's a, it's a great study if you want to dig a little deeper this week. But let's look at verse four. He says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Now, the important thing here is to notice that at least in most of our English Bibles, verse four begins a new sentence, right? Verse three is a sentence. And then a new sentence begins in verse four. But in the original, there's just one long complex sentence that begins in what we call verse three and goes all the way through the end of verse 14. So look down, that's a lot of verses. That's a big part of chapter one. So that's gonna be important as we get a little further into today's study and also into, into our study next week. Now, there were some important phrases in verse 4. The first one, those three words that bring so much controversy at times, he chose us. He chose us. And we'll spend 
some considerable time with that this morning. Notice when he chose us uh, before the foundation of the world, what he chose us for, to be holy and blameless in love before him. Then look at verse 5. It says, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, the big word in verse 5 is the word predestined. Now, my hope is, my prayer is that at the end of this message, you will love that word. It's a word that has created all kinds of controversy. Many people run from that word. You may have been surprised that it was actually in the Bible, but this is the greatest word ever. This points to the greatest and most valuable truth, the most wonderful treasure any person could know, and I want to convince you of that uh, today. Sometimes, though, people will take a different view, and I've had people ask, Pastor, uh, do you believe in predestination? Uh, or oftentimes they'll ask it with an even more negative twist. They'll say, Pastor, you don't believe in predestination, do you? And when they say it, I just smile and, and I think, yes, I, I believe in that word and all the other words in the Bible. You ought to read it sometime. It's a great book. So certainly the word predestination is right there in the middle of this and it's in the middle of a lot of passages in the Bible. So certainly uh, we believe in predestination. I guess the, uh, the, the difficult part is exactly what does that mean? And we will um, we'll work on that some, uh, some this morning. You know, we learned in verse 3, if you noticed, that God has promised to bless us. He not only promises to bless us, but he says he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every important blessing we would need in life. And the first one is predestination. And over the next few verses of this one sentence, we're going to see several more ways that God has blessed us. We'll see a list of these. And if the Lord allows the next few weeks, we're just going to work through these as if it were a vocabulary list. We're going to take each one of these and see if we can, if we can understand it. So our focus, though, today is on the word and the truth of predestination. Uh, so there are a lot of myths that have grown up around that word and what it means. So let me begin by dispelling some of those, if I can. Some have suggested that predestination is the hardest concept in the Bible to understand. But I want to tell you, it is not. It does require a little bit of humility, and it does require a great deal of confidence in God's word, but I trust we have both of those. Uh, the Bible is written to be understood by man. And God is the master communicator. And so this is not too difficult for us to understand. And uh, we'll understand it today. Uh, the second myth, it is said that this doctrine limits human freedom and unfairly condemns people to hell. Well, no. In fact, just the opposite is the truth, and we'll see more of that in a moment. Uh, myth number three, it is said that controversy over this doctrine divides Christians. Well, it can, and it has, but it does not have to divide. I think much of what I've heard from flamethrowers on both sides of uh, this artificial issue 
are saying things that, for the most part, are just wrong. I've heard people all the way on one side uh, describe what they believe and criticize what other people believe in such a way that just makes me want to say to them, have you never read Romans chapter 9? In fact, I I listen to what some people say and I I think you, you couldn't have read Romans chapter 9 and be a Christian and say the things that you say. But then I hear people all the way on the other side of the debate say things that makes me wonder. Have you read the book of James? Have you read 1 John, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter? You couldn't read those books and say the things uh, that you say. And then to make it more difficult, people put labels on other people when they don't fully understand what the labels mean. And sometimes there's just real no real agreement on what the labels mean. So you hear people talk about Calvinism, or you hear people talk about Arminianism, Calvinism, the view of John Calvin, Arminianism, the view of Jacob Arminius. Uh, I I think a lot of times people who use those words uh, just don't really have any clear understanding of what that means. I've not read the writings of Jacob Arminius, uh, but I did read Calvin's Institutes this last May. And it's pretty interesting. It's about 2,000 pages. It's not light reading. But when I got through with it, here's what I thought. Many people who call themselves Calvinists have never read John Calvin. So there's just all kinds of confusion about these labels. I prefer we just stick to the Bible. Let's just use Bible categories and Bible labels. We are Bible people. Let's see what it says. Now, with that uh, attack upon the myths, let me walk you through these few verses in Ephesians chapter 1, and let's see if we can learn why predestination is such a blessing. Why predestination? I mean, my hope is when you leave here, you're going to say that is the greatest thing I have ever heard of. How is it, why is it such a blessing? And there are five reasons. I don't have much confidence we'll get to all five, but uh, there are five reasons, and we will, we will begin. By the way, uh, I, I write a manuscript for my messages, uh, mostly a manuscript, and there is one for this message. It is 6,000 words long, okay? My preaching outline is only about 1,500, so you just take a deep breath. But if you'd like all the points and all of the scripture to back up all the points and you just really are bored this uh, afternoon, uh, I'm not sure it'll be available this afternoon, but tomorrow afternoon, uh, just go to our website and you'll be able to pull that up or go to noeldeer.com and they're all listed there. Uh, But let's begin. Number one, the reason it is a blessing is that it is a plan that could only be devised in the mind of God. Look back at verse 4. It says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We said that the three words that bring controversy are those three words, he chose us. He chose, he chose what? He chose us. 
And so that causes people to ask all kinds of questions. Does that mean that I don't get to choose? If he chose me, does that mean that I did not choose him? Does that mean I'm just some sort of robot that God has wound up and I have no free will? And then who is the us that he has chosen? If he has chosen us, does that mean that he has chosen against a different us? Or could us be everybody? Or could us just be a few? What if us is not me? Did, did God choosing us, is that fair to the people who are not a part of us? And then if God chose before the foundation of the world, then what did he base his choice on and how could that be fair to anybody? So those are the questions that people have been asking for 2,000 years and today, Labor Day weekend, we're gonna solve every one of them. Number one, tension is okay. Sometimes there will just be things you don't understand and that's okay if we have some tough questions. Secondly, we shouldn't be surprised, let's think about it, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't fully understand uh, the mind of God? Does it surprise you that you don't understand the mind of God? Of course we don't. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the hidden things belong to the Lord. Isaiah 55, 9 says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. Of course there are going to be some things we can't fully understand. I remember one of my daughters had eye surgery a bunch of years ago and it was one of those situations where we had met with the doctors, but we had not actually met with this surgeon, this specialized surgeon that had spent his entire career learning how to operate on the muscles around a child's eyes. And so it was the morning of the surgery and the surgeon comes in, gives us a quick description of what he plans to do. And of course I Googled it, so I was an expert. And I began to ask him some questions because it didn't make sense that he you know, was gonna tighten something up that already was under the voluntary control of, of my daughter who could turn her eyes left and right just fine and how that would fix the problem and then he was gonna adjust this and this and that and then how did you know when somebody was asleep that you were adjusting it the right way? And so I asked those questions and he gave an answer. He was very patient with me uh, at, at that point. <laughs> Well, his answer wasn't satisfactory, so I pointed out a few things that I believe to be true and asked him some further questions, and then he gave an answer, and then I gave a reply, and then he gave an answer, and I rebutted his answer. And then I looked at my wife, who gave me a look that I could instantly tell meant, exactly when, babe, did you get your medical license? <laughs> and then I looked at the doctor, and he had the very same look on his face. <laughs> At that point, I decided that perhaps there are things that I don't understand with my Google search that this man who had dedicated his entire life to studying some things he might understand. And when I approach the throne of God, it does not shock me or disturb me in any way that there are things that are true about God and his motives and his ways that I do not comprehend. Uh, so how do we handle this? Uh, I do have questions. So how do we handle this seeming contradiction, at least in my mind, maybe in your mind, about predestination? Well, I think we start here. We are people of the book. 
Uh, I believe that the word of God is true. I believe it is understandable. I, I believe God has presented it in a way that I can understand what God wants me to understand. And I believe it is sufficient to answer all of our questions. So let's, let's just ask the book some questions about this and see what answers we get. Question number one, what does the Bible say about God's choice? Now, nobody throw anything at me. Let's get all the way through this and let's just ask the honest question. Beginning with this, what does the Bible say about God's choice? Well, it says that God chooses who will be saved. Now, let's, let's see it. So we've already looked at verse four, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Bible, listen church, generally means what it seems like it means, okay? That seems like a pretty straightforward statement. And then verse five says the same thing, he predestined, that means he determined our destiny ahead of time. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. God chose who would be saved. We could find this in many other places in the Bible. Romans chapter eight, verses 29 and 30, listen to this. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that they would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so he says, he foreknew them and he predestined, he knew about them ahead of time, he destinated them, he determined their destiny ahead of time. And then the next verse says, those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified, seeing that once he started this process, he chose you, then he ultimately will completely save you until you are his child in heaven. Uh, this, um, this passage uh, precludes us from saying that he chose everybody, because here it says in Romans 8, 29 and 30, that if he chose you, he will finally and fully save you. But we know that everybody is not saved from his sins. Uh, it does leave open the possibility that God knew first and chose second, that he looked down through the corridors of time. You hear people say this often. And he knew what you would choose. And so he predestined those he knew already would choose uh, and there's some other verses that seem to support that, but there are also many verses that eliminate that possibility. In Romans chapter 9, 15 and 16, probably the strongest, but there are many that say, no, he, he chose us. And, and it was simply out of his heart for his desire, for his purpose, glory and honor. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. It says nobody can come unless God draws him. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, those are verses we're very familiar with. For you are saved by grace through faith. And then what's the rest of it? So you're saved by the grace of God through faith. I point to me because faith, that's what I have, faith. But where does faith come from? He says in this faith, from, not from yourselves, even your faith is a gift from God. It is not from works. It's not something you've done. And no man can boast about it. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, the words of Christ. And I could give you a, a score more verses, and I did in my, in my manuscript. Listen, if we take the Bible to mean what it seems to mean, then people are saved 
Because God chose them based not on anything that they do or any merit that they have, but simply because it fit the purpose of his will. That is clearly what the Bible teaches. That is not all that the Bible teaches, but that is clearly what the Bible teaches. Now, let's go to the second question. What does the Bible say about God's heart? If that's what the Bible says about God's choice, then what does it say about God's heart? Well, three things, two things. First of all, Jesus died to forgive the sins of every person. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And there are other verses. That takes me to number two, God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to be forgiven. 2 Peter 3, 9, and again, I just give you a sample of verses. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so if we take the Bible to mean what it seems to mean, then it is true that God desires every person to be saved and has made a way for that to happen if they will respond to his conviction, his grace, and his mercy. Now, that's not all that the Bible says, but the Bible clearly says that, which takes us to question three. What does the Bible say about our choice? If God chooses, clearly the Bible says that, but God also desires and has made a way for all people to be saved, then do I have a choice in this? Well, let's see what the Bible says. The Bible says, first of all, that God convicts every person of his sin. That's the first step, by the way, in coming to know the Lord. You have to know that you're guilty of sin. John 16, 8, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. We also know that we can resist the movement of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Uh, one sample verse would be Acts 7.51. Uh, it says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And then number three, we must respond to God's offer and we must choose. Uh, John 1.12, to all who did receive him, That's all who did choose to receive him. He gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. He says it's it's those who made the choice to receive salvation that were made children of God. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. That's everyone who chooses to call upon the name of the Lord. That person will be saved. It says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There is a choice that's involved. And so if we take the Bible for what it seems to mean, then it is true that God calls us all to make a consequential choice. Meaning if we choose one way, here are the consequences. And if we choose a different way, here are some different consequences. God calls on us all to make a consequential choice. So how do we reconcile those things together? Do you see that there is a way to hold those things up and say that they do not fit logically together? So how then do we reconcile those? One great theologian and preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, you don't have to reconcile friends. 
And, and what he meant was, while this might seem like a contradiction in our hearts and in our little puny brains, it is not a contradiction in the heart and the mind of God. If God wanted to correct the Bible, he would have corrected the Bible. If God wanted to change it and communicate it differently, if God wanted to say something different, he would have. God's not up in heaven saying, oh, I wish I could take that back. No, in, in Noel's mind and heart, there may be some conflict between those things. But in the mind and heart of God, there is no conflict. God is the master communicator. And we have to be careful, and this is something that happens often in higher education, seminary, Bible education. We have to be careful that, that when we systemize theology, and what I mean by that is we take all of these theological truths from the Bible, and we lift them out of the Bible, and we try to fit them into a system. So here's everything the Bible says about angels, and so here's everything the Bible says about forgiveness. And we try to come up with these statements to systemize things. We need to be careful. There's some value to that, but if that's what God wanted us to have, he would have given us a reference manual for systematic theology. God didn't. He gave us the Bible, not because he couldn't do better, but because there is no better way to communicate the heart and mind of God. We need to take it like it is instead of making it into something that it's not. So if God says, I choose you before the foundation of the world, which he did, and if God also says, choose you this day whom you will serve, which he did, then I accept that both of those are true. And I'm not surprised because his ways are higher than my ways, that both of those can be true in his heart and mind, even if I struggle in my own heart and mind. In fact, what's interesting is in John 6, 37, words of Christ, Jesus puts both truths in one verse. Listen to this. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. That's the beginning. Jesus said, God's already decided, and everybody he gives to me, all of those will come. And the one who comes, who chooses to come, I will never cast him out. There are all kinds of things, let's just be honest, that we don't understand in Scripture. I don't understand the incarnation, do you? I believe it, I certainly believe it, that, that Jesus, uh, the, the creator of the universe, became flesh, a little baby, grew up with all of the sensibilities and, and the vulnerabilities of a little baby, yet he still was the sovereign God. I don't understand that. I believe it, but I don't understand it. I don't understand, um, I don't understand eternity. I don't understand that that John 1 says that if you go all the way back to the beginning, that God was already there. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. But I believe it. I believe it. There are many things in Scripture I do not understand. But because of my high regard for God's Word, and hopefully a little bit of humility, I accept that salvation is 100% the sovereign choice and act of God who loves every person who is created in the image of God, and that's every person. And he calls every person to respond in faith to God's love while every person will not respond. Every person may respond and no salvation. The Bible supports all those truths and supports them clearly. Okay, so that's, 
That's predestination, something that could only have been imagined in the mind and the heart of God. And we will spend the rest of eternity marveling at how all of that could fit together. But the second reason we should be amazed at predestination, and here's really where my focus is, the plan is contingent upon the character of God. If you look back at verse 4, there are two words there that we often skip that are the key words to the entire sentence, verses 3 through 14. Look at it again. For he chose us, what are the next two words? In him. In him. Now, that phrase, in him, means in Christ. You see that if you go back to verse 3. So in him, in Christ, it actually appears, I mean, you tell me if this is good grammar, it actually appears in this one sentence almost a dozen times. I have it underlined in my Bible in red. Verse 3, it says in Christ. Verse 4, it says in him. Verse 5, it says through Christ. Verse 6, it says in the beloved one who is Christ. In verse 7, it says in him. In verse 9, it says in Christ. In verse 10, it says in Christ. In verse 11, it says in him. In verse 12, it says in Christ. In verse 13, it says in him. Again in verse 14, 13, it says in him. It goes on and on and on. This is the key to understanding the whole message here. We are saved. We are adopted into the family of Christ, not because of us. It's not something that's in us. We have a relationship with God because of Christ, because of the character of God demonstrated in the work and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Our connection with God isn't because of our character, but it's because of his character. This plan, how we become a child of God, is contingent upon his character and only his character. So why is that important? Because, church, if it were in us even a little bit, it could never happen. If my salvation depended half on me and half on God, listen, I could never be saved because I could never hold up my half. And if salvation depended 99% on God and 1% on me, it still would not be genuine salvation because I don't have enough goodness to uphold the 1%. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is no one righteous, not even one person. You know, the truth about us is that we are all selfish, vain, unreliable, lying, wicked people. Now, don't elbow somebody. I know some more than others. But the Bible says that's the truth about all of us. There's no good in us apart from what the Lord has done in us. And even when it seems, and maybe you're defending yourself in your mind right now, even when it seems that there's some good in us, under closer inspection, that is not the case. When you do something that's good or noble, let's just be honest. Sometimes it's so that other people will think more highly of you. You're just doing it so somebody will notice. Sometimes it's to gain some benefit for yourself or some advantage over other people. Sometimes it's to allay some fear of falling short of expectations, either the expectation of peers or authorities or God himself. Or sometimes we just do it so that we'll feel better about ourselves. But the truth is, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that the very best things in me are like filthy rags. There's no good in me. 
Uh, Adrian Rogers, the preacher that, um, of a generation ago that I love, uh, he, he said this, I would not trust the best 15 minutes I have ever lived to be good enough to get me to heaven. But we compare ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to God. And we get this idea that, God, I can get about halfway there if you'll just get me the rest of the way. And, and, and that's wrong. And, and that's not biblical. And no, you can't get half the way. You can't get any of the way. There's this illustration that I've used. You've probably heard it from me. Um, and I was thinking about it this week. It's a terrible illustration. <laughs> so I'm going to tell it to you, even though it's terrible. Uh, so, but, but, but here's the point. I want to give you the illustration, and then you figure out what's wrong with it, okay? And so I, I'll sometimes talk to people about trying to get to God on your own, by your character, by being good enough, following the rules, turning over a new leaf, trying harder. And, and, and I say that that's like all of us going outside late one night out here in the parking lot, and it's all looking up at the moon, and we're all trying to touch the moon by standing on our tiptoes. Now, the truth is, some of us could reach higher than others, right? Some of, a, some of you taller, some of you shorter, some of you wouldn't have much chance at all, right? But we're out there, we're all, we're all standing on our tiptoes, and we're trying to touch, touch the moon, and it's hopeless. And, and so here's the point I make after I give the illustration is that your, your character, your righteousness, your goodness can't get to God any further, any more successfully than you can touch the moon on your tiptoes. Now, what's wrong with that illustration? Well, here's what's wrong, and here's why I'm going to try not to use it anymore. That illustration imagines that we are all running around trying to touch the moon. It, 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 it assumes that we're all trying to get to God. But the Bible says, no, that's not even the case. Romans 3.11, there's no one understands who understands. There's no one who seeks God. No, our condition is even worse than that. The, the person who's standing on his toes trying to reach the moon, at least he's standing on his toes trying, right? The Bible says that none of us are even trying to be close to God apart from God's conviction and drawing power. And so our only hope, listen, church, if it, if it were 1% up to us, we could never be saved. This is why predestination is such a good thing. This is why it's so, so encouraging to know that God chose me before the foundation of the world. Because that means it's 100% up to God. That comforts me. Because I know if it were even one, one thousandth of a percent up to me, I would come up short. Now, let me wrap this up by telling you why predestination, why it's the most wonderful thing. There are two choices. I'm either made right with God by my track record and by my choices, or I'm made right with God because of his character before I ever lived, sinned, and rebelled. Now, which one of those two things do you want to be true? Listen, I don't want it to be up to me. I am thankful it's up to him. Charles Spurgeon said, God surely must have chosen me before I was born because he would never have chosen me afterwards. When someone asks me if I believe in predestination, you'd be surprised at how often they do. When someone asks me if I believe in predestination, the first thing I do is I cringe a little bit on the inside because I know they're, 
talking about some crazy controversy that they likely don't understand. But number two, Pastor, do you believe in predestination? Not only do I believe in it, I am so thankful for it because I know my heart. And I know that if it were not for God choosing me, there would be no hope for me to ever have a right relationship with God. Predestination is the most wonderful thing in the world. I am not a very emotional person, uh, but I can tell you this morning uh, with no exaggeration, I, uh, I just wept in my office as I meditated on the fact that if it were not for him choosing me, I know the wickedness, the rebellion, the vanity in my life. If it were not for him and it being 100% by his character, I know I would have no hope. The plan is contingent upon the character of God. I'm going to go through these last three quickly. Uh, the plan is effectual, effectual. You could say effective. Effectual is more of a, speaks to a, a theological concept here. But if you look at verse four, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. What, is, what did he choose for me? He didn't just choose for me to get out of hell. He chose for me to be holy and blameless. There are two ways that happens. One is it's in Christ. I am holy and blameless because I am covered in the blood of Christ. And also because God wants to form the character of Christ in me. And the rest of the book of Ephesians, uh, the first two and a half chapters and the last three and a half chapters, uh, the first two and a half are going to teach us what it means that we are holy and blameless in Christ. And the last three and a half are going to teach us how to be holy and blameless and have the character of Christ formed in us. Uh, so, more to come. Number four, the plan. Now, don't write it down. Don't write it down. If I, so I hope I stopped you in time. The plan blank the Lord. Don't write honors. Uh, let, me t let me tell you what I mean. If you look at verses five and six, you can write something in a minute. I know some of you are itching because there's a blank and you hadn't filled it in yet. Uh, he says in verse five, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And we didn't read verse six a while ago, but I want to read it now. To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Uh, to the praise, it says, verse 6, to his glorious grace. Why does God save rebellious sinners? I can't imagine why God even fools with us. Why does he save us? Because it highlights his love, grace, and mercy. What, what, what is the most amazing thing about God? You could say it's his power, his, his strength, his wisdom, and all those things are amazing. But you know the most amazing thing about God is that he saves rebellious sinners. And why does he do this? For his praise. So that people will say, wow, look, at, look what God must be like if he would save a person like Noel. That's exactly why he does this. For his praise and honor. So I, I originally intended for you to write the word honors. The plan honors the Lord because it does. But let me give you an even better word. And I, I changed this this morning. If you look back at verse 5, I sort of skipped over it. The end of verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. 
what does it mean, his good pleasure? That doesn't mean his fun times. God's not amused by my salvation. It's not a game. What does it mean that my salvation that he has bestowed upon me, that that is his good pleasure? I spent uh, a fair amount of time this morning just, just pulling that apart and seeing how that word is used in a bunch of different places. I, I, I think the best way to understand it is satisfaction. God is satisfied by a lost man being saved. God is satisfied by a, by a person who deserves hell, who is headed for a Christless grave, for that person to be saved by the blood of Jesus, forgiven and embraced into the family of God, that satisfies him. And so, if I were writing it down, I would say the plan satisfies the Lord, because I think that's just amazing. And then, one last thing, the plan is extravagant. There in verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Lavished, that's not a word you see often in the Bible. What does he mean? What does he mean? Here's how most Christians, now hang with me here, I know it's a long message, but we're almost finished. Here's how most Christians think of God. And I want you to listen to this because I think many Christians right here listening to me today, we think of God this way. I think I think of God this way, way more than I should. Here it is, that God has this big bucket of grace and mercy and forgiveness. I mean, it's a big bucket. I mean, we're Christians, we're Bible people. We would, we would say Christ died for this. It's a big bucket. There's a lot of grace and a lot of mercy and a lot of forgiveness in that bucket. And we think that if we need a little bit of it, that we can go to the Lord and he will reach in with a little teaspoon and he will get out just enough to barely cover our sins and he'll grumble the whole time. How many times are you going to come and ask this? How many times are you going to mess up? How many times are you going to rebel against me? But here's a little bit of grace and a little bit of mercy and he doles it out just barely enough. And we're ashamed to go back and ask for it too often. And consequently, we live in shame and in guilt and in regret and we live in condemnation because we misunderstand God in his bucket. What does this verse say? This verse says he doesn't dole it out with a teaspoon. He lavishes it on us. He lavishes. He loves me so much. It satisfies him so greatly. He is so honored by forgiving me and restoring me that he wants to lavish his grace and mercy on me. I can't think of a better word in the entire Bible than predestination. I thought about some. God loves me, that's, that's good, that's wonderful. But sometimes I think about love and I think, well, I don't deserve it. And he loves me now, but will he love me tomorrow? Who knows what I might do in the next 24 hours. Sometimes I think about grace and mercy and I, I wonder if, if it's gonna run out, if I'm gonna push past the limit. 
But when I think about the fact that he has chosen me before I was born, before the creation of the world, that he has chosen me to be holy and blameless and to bring praise and honor to his name forever. Listen, I don't understand all the ins and outs. Somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll give me a verse and I won't be able to explain it and that'll be okay. But I know this, God loves me and has chosen me and I have received it and I am adopted into the family of God. Two questions. How will you allow, how will you allow Lord, the Lord to lavish grace on you today? I wonder if you need to go back to God in the bucket with a whole different expectation. If there's some condemnation and some shame and some guilt that you need to bring and let him just turn the bucket over on you, that's what he wants to do. And then how will you respond to the incredible gift of predestination? I believe that God chose me. I believe it as much as I believe anything I have ever read or ever heard. I believe that God chose me before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless and bring praise and honor to him forever and ever. But I also believe in 1985 when somebody explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to me and somebody called me to make a decision I believe, I believe that if I would have rejected it then, I would have never known Christ as my Savior. And so I ask you, how will you respond to the incredible gift of predestination? Head bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, we'll stand and sing, and I'll be joined here in the front by one or two of our other ministers and you can come even while we're singing and say, hey, I, I need somebody to help me know how I can accept the grace and mercy of Christ that's 100% by the character of God. Never heard of something so great. I want that. We'll help you with that. When the service concludes in a moment, um, there'll be a minister at the front of both rooms and he's gonna wait to see if somebody would like to come and talk about that. There'll be ministers in the uh, greeting area outside of both worship centers today. Nothing would thrill us more than to take some time and help you connect with the Lord. Father, thank you that you chose me before the creation of the world. And I'm thankful that you've broken my heart with that this morning. May I never get over that. And I thank you that somebody faithfully shared the gospel with me. And that in 1985, I responded. And you adopted me on that day into your family. And I pray that we will celebrate your choice by embracing that. Even though we may not understand the details, that we'll embrace it today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.